Good morning, everybody. And again, welcome to visitors. Uh, my name is Ben Hannon, and uh, I've been uh, preaching sort of a series on giving over the past, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks, whatever it's been, but not consistently. We had a couple of interruptions. I was sick one, one week, and then the Lord's Supper last week. So actually, I was, <laughs> I was thinking that I was preaching last Sunday until about 4.30 on Saturday, and then I realized it was the Lord's Supper, so... That was fine, but, you know, hey, these things happen, right? So uh, anyways, um, what I'd like to do is um, start out by just reading a few of the, the points we've already covered since it's been a couple of weeks, um, do a, a brief review. Um, but before I do that, why don't we pray once again and just ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Lord, um, all of us here who are believers in you are glad to be here, Lord. Um, whether we're um, full of joy and peace and hope and love, or we just are just glad to be here, Lord. Whether whether or not that's uh, you know our state uh, to be full or just kind of barely filled up, Lord, we're glad to be here because we are your people, called to, into fellowship with you and into fellowship with one another. And Lord, it's better to be in the house of the Lord than to be anywhere else. And we know that this is not, when I'm not talking about this building here, I'm talking about being in fellowship with you and with one another. Uh, we are your body, your church. Um, and so when we're together, we are uh, your people assembled, the church. And so we're glad to be uh, the, the expression, uh, the local expression of your worldwide body right here this morning as New Covenant Christian Fellowship. And Lord, um, that's, that's a work that you have done, um, calling us into, into fellowship with you and Lord, um, we just want to give you praise and, and glory and have the right mindset as we come in here, Lord, that we, have, we are recipients of grace, Lord. Um, that's the very nature of grace. It's received. It's not earned. It's not something we can conjure up or we can um, in any way contribute to, Lord. It's, it's uh, getting paid for something you didn't do. <laughs> and Lord, we've done nothing but pay you out in, in evil, de- evil deeds, Lord, and you have not returned uh, on our heads, what is our just due, Lord? Those of us who are in Christ have had our, <coughs> our uh, sin debt canceled, Lord. All of, the, all of the sins that were stacked up against us, Lord, you nailed them to the cross, and they're no more, um, as we just sung about, Lord. And uh, I pray that this morning, as we talk about giving, it would be um, uh, not just some topic on the side that we talk about because we have to, Lord, and that it would be seen as central to the gospel, an expression of the gospel, uh, uh, a tangible outcome of those who have been, um, who have experienced this grace, Lord, that we would want to give um, of what we have in every way, including financially, Lord, um, because that is what your people do, Lord. We've received, and, and we understand grace, so Lord, we want to be gracious to others and, um, and bear, bear one, another's, one another's burdens. So, Lord, be with us this morning as we look at your word, and just fill us with an excitement, Lord, to um, be motivated to live more in accordance with, with what you tell us to do, Lord, knowing that it's only for our good, Lord. Um, you never tell us anything that's um, to harm us, Lord. It's always for good and for our joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, so I'm just going to first type in my code on my iPad. Let's see here. <clears throat> So the way I um, divided this up, this topic, is into basically five big headings, and we've looked at two of the headings so far. So the first major heading we've looked at a few weeks back uh, was giving 
uh, well, the, the, sen- the statement is, or question is, why should you give? That's a very fundamental you know, question we should be asking if we're talking about giving. We could just go into it assuming that we should be giving, but the question really we need to address, or, and did address up front, is why? Why should we give? And I provided the following answers. Let me go back to my other outline. I clicked the wrong one, sorry. Technology. Um, Firstly, that giving is expected and commanded, so it's not an optional thing when you read the scriptures. It's something that is expected. It's something that the Lord tells us to do. Jesus says, when you give, um, don't do it in this way or that way, but do it this way. It's just stated as something that we should be doing. Secondly, that giving is necessary. What I mean by that is that there are real needs that people have, um, a variety of needs, right? And that we need to be contributing to. And if we do not contribute to those needs, the needs go unmet. God's not going to rain money or food or anything else from heaven. He could do it, but he's chosen not to do it that way, right? He's chosen to use us as the expression of his, his hands and feet, as it were, to accomplish his purposes in the world. And part of that is through giving um, in, in every way. Um, but in this case, materially, financially. Um, Giving is blessed. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? It's a blessed thing. Giving is pleasing to the Lord. Just making the point that every Christian wants to please the Lord. We sometimes don't know how to think about that. Are we pleasing the Lord? Are we not? When you go to the scriptures, it doesn't leave leave pleasing the Lord in some nebulous category. There are tangible ways we can know if we're pleasing the Lord. Do you have love for the brethren? Do you, you know... um, Honor widows. Do you give to those widows? Giving is one of those ways, tangible ways, you can know that you are serving the Lord, that you're pleasing the Lord. Um, Do we, um, or rather, giving results in thanksgiving to God. So, um, of course, as you, anyone who, who gives as a giver, you are glad after the fact. I mean, kids, VBS, right? You came and you gave money almost every night, right? Were you glad to do it or did you, well, let me ask the parents. Did the did your kids come home after VBS after they gave? And did they start complaining, wow, I wish I had that $10 back, you know? Anybody? No. Because giving is blessed, and, it, and as, you, as you do it, you feel a thankfulness in your heart to God that you were able to do it. And on the flip side, those who are recipients of what's given, those who receive, are of course thankful because they've had a need, a need met, um, or they've been supported in some way. Um, nextly, giving supports, I'm sorry, uh, demonstrates the love of Christ to fellow Christians and the world. Um, it's pretty, I will leave that as is. It's a pretty obvious statement. Um, giving is the ultimate savings program. That sounds like a weird kind of thing to say, but Jesus says this. I think he says we shouldn't lay up treasure here because it goes away, you know, it gets you know, corroded, corrupted, destroyed, but we should lay up treasure in heaven because that's where real treasure is, right? Um, heaven is a place where your treasure is safe. Anything you lay up here is just going to go away. It's going to fade, right? It's not going to last. But the things we do now, the way we invest our resources now, carries over into eternity. God will reward us for those things. Um, and then we should give, ultimately, and there, this is really the ultimate reason, because we have received. We've received grace upon grace, right? So we should be people whose, whose demeanor is ready to give, willing to share, right? It's not something that's uh, a hard thing that we have to uh, kind of get into our minds and, fi- and justify this and that. We should be ready and willing to open our arms and open our hands to people and say, hey, you have a need? Okay, I have, oh, I have a way of meeting that need. Here it is. And not much thought goes into it. That's how you know grace has gripped you when that's the way you operate. 
that you don't think too, too, you don't hold on to things so tightly, right? That you realize that God is a giving God, and therefore, if we've received, we should give, right? So the next week, we looked at uh, a couple of different questions, which were, in what manner should you give, and what should your attitude be when giving? So uh, similar questions, related, but different questions in, in and of themselves. And I was saying that from the scriptures, we should give in secret, right? So it shouldn't be something that we uh, placard for everyone to see. Hey, I'm giving, I'm giving. Look right here, I'm giving. Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? You should give in secret. Uh, not to say that if you, you know, walk over here and drop some money in the offerings box and we can all see you that your heart is black or something like that. It's, an, it's a heart issue, isn't it, about how you give. You shouldn't be give, giving in a way to gain the approval of men, but for the approval of the Lord, right? Um, we should give expecting a reward from God, uh, as I just was saying. We should give cheerfully, Paul says. God loves a cheerful giver, not, we shouldn't give under compulsion. What Paul means by that is not that, that doesn't cancel out the earlier statement about giving is commanded and expected, but that the, the amount that we give is not determined by, and we'll talk about this more later, but it's not determined by any certain percentage point or number, but it's cheerful giving, right? That you determine in your own heart before the Lord, you and your family, uh, how much you will be giving. And so God loves a cheerful giver, uh, not, not someone who gives with a, a hand, you know, half uh, clenching the dollar bill and it's, you know, you're having to pull it out, so to speak. Um, we should give out of a heart of compassion, of course, for, for everyone, believers in the first place, for the lost, for the world in general. Um, again, that's our mode of operation as believers that we have received compassion. We've received the compassion of the Lord in our lives through the gospel. Therefore, we are compassionate people. Um, and then lastly, that we should give with contentment um, with what we have left to enjoy for ourselves. So um, the, Bible's, the Bible doesn't have anything positive to say about asceticism. That's not to say that at times people will not be, um, at times there will be a need to give as the Corinthian church did uh, beyond, or I'm sorry, not the Corinthian church, the Macedonians gave beyond their means, right? There are times for that, but being in a state of need yourself is not the goal. <laughs> the goal is not to be in a, where you're at this tipping point where if I give another penny, I'll be in desti a destitute position, right? That's not the goal. Um, the goal is to live a stable life, right? And of course, whatever you have left over for yourself after you, before the Lord, give cheerfully, enjoy those things, right? Um, God has given us all things to enjoy, as, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So this morning, we're going to look at um, a question, the next question, which is, to whom and for what should you give? And I very well may not get through this question, so I'm sorry, but that's just how it goes. <laughs> um, you start looking into this stuff, and you realize there's more there than you thought. So to whom and for what should you give? That's our question this morning. And we're going to start by looking at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, about Abraham. Now let's just read, actually let me turn to Genesis, we'll read a little bit before verse 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The first group of people we could think about that we should give to, give to or give support to would be missionaries. You know, why would I go to this passage? Well, the foundation of Christian, miss, uh, Christian mission is this passage, essentially. You could go before, maybe, but this is where we really see the, uh, you know, everything kind of comes to a head as far as God's going to start doing something new with this fellow Abram, right? The foundation of Christian mission is the call of Abram as an antidote to the dispersion of the Tower of Babel, right? So everyone's together, up until Genesis chapter 11, and I mean the whole world is together, anyone that existed was in one place, and then the Tower of Babel happens, and everyone's dispersed. And then you have Genesis chapter 12. Well, how does Genesis 12 relate to everything that comes before, especially chapter 11? Well, God has not forgotten about the nations, right? We, sh- we shouldn't, re- if you read the Old Testament as if it's all about Israel, the end, that's a terrible way of reading the Old Testament, right? It's not just about the Jews. <laughs> it's about everybody, because the Jews are called to be, as it says here, Abram was called to be a blessing to all the fam- families of the earth. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is the one true and living God. He's the God of the nations, and he cares about all of the nations, right? I was just reading through, I've been reading through some of the minor prophets, and, you know, it's interesting how, um, you know, there'll, there'll be books like Obadiah that addresses Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, or, you know, my goodness, Jonah. I mean, Jonah's up in arms because God cares about these Ninevites, right? These Assyrians, these enemies of Israel. He can't handle it, right? He doesn't get Genesis 12, that this is God's plan all along. They're not, it's not a side project, it's just in due course, everything will come to a head to where the gospel goes to the nations. And that takes time, and that's the developing story of the Old Testament. But the programmatic text here in chapter 12 of Genesis is just that. It's programmatic. It's the whole, it's the whole game, you know, wrapped up in one little verse there, that God is going to bless the nations ultimately through the gospel. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abram, who is Christ, Paul says in Galatians. When Jesus calls his, <clears throat> his disciples and commissions them to be fishers of men and sends them out in pairs to spread the good news of the kingdom far and wide, this is what's in the background. It's not some new thing, right? Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't come along and say, well, now we're going to start you know, telling other people other than Jews about this good news, right? This, this is not some new thing. This is a plan all along. Jesus is, is it's, it's the outworking of that plan, of God's plan from the beginning, now you can turn to Luke 10. That was, sorry, mixed you up there. Luke 10, <clears throat> verse 1. I'll give you a, mo- a moment just to turn there. So this is the text where Jesus, of course, he has his disciples. He's already chosen them all, and he sends them out, sends them out. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, <clears throat> go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those, who are, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, for our purposes this morning, we should note that Jesus views the proclamation of the gospel as a labor. It's a labor. He says that they are, well, right here, he says the laborer is worthy of his wages, right? It's a work. It's a labor that should result in pay or wages. Well, what are those wages according to the passage before us? Well, it's food and drink and shelter, right? It's the necessities of life. Um, that it delineates here, stay in that house, eating and drinking, what they give you, etc. eat what is set before you. The disciples are worthy recipients of hospitality because this is not a vacation. It's not, you're going to travel over here to this city, and you're going to have a grand old time relaxing at the expense of someone else. No, <laughs> they're laboring in the gospel. They're sent out to do the hardest work imaginable, to come up against people in darkness and often in the grip of demonic forces, <laughs> Right? and to do battle. So they are worthy of their pay, worthy of their wages. It's rather like a work trip. You know, you don't go, if your job sends you on a work trip, you don't pay (laughs) for the trip, right? Or you shouldn't. They pay for your hotel stay, they pay for your food, you know, and so forth. That's what this is like, essentially, you know? It's a work trip for, for these disciples of Jesus. There are many other passages we could consider regarding pay and support for Christian missionaries, but one of the clearest, aside from this, is a sort of a, a fundamental passage. One of the clearest and most helpful is 3 John, verses 5 through 8. So if you'll turn there next, we're going to move on to, to that text. 3 John, I keep wanting to say chapter 1. There is, I mean, there's really no chapter. I guess it is chapter 1, but verses 5 through 8. It's just one, one chapter. <clears throat> So as, as you know, with most of the, the letters in the New Testament, there are occasional letters, right? There's a background. We don't, we don't always know all the details. We'd like to know more details sometimes as to what the, the background and the occasion was. But we know this much about John's, uh, the, the background to Third John and most of the New Testament letters is there's false teaching going on, right? There's false teachers. Uh, in fact, missionaries, we would say, who are false teachers going around and spreading, spreading their own version of the gospel. Don't we have this in our own day, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, right? They're going to, they're missionaries doing their own thing, the work of Satan, bringing their good news to people, which is terrible news because it's works. But same thing, nothing ever changes. There are these people going around, um, you know, preaching things that are false. And on the flip side of the coin, we have, you know, God's people who are bringing the good news, the real good news to folks. And so, um, what it says here in, in 3 John verse 5 is, Beloved, uh, this is John writing to Gaius, who is the elder of, uh, he's, he's the elder that he's writing to. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, <clears throat> and they have testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans, or the unbelievers, or it may say the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to uh, support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. 
The context is that John, again, is writing to Gaius, who's a fellow elder, and commending him for taking care of, of missionaries that John has sent out. And as the missionaries were sent out from John and did their work, they stayed with Gaius um, and were t- taken care of by him and the other Christians as part of his community of uh, believers. And apparently they had, uh, those missionaries had returned to John and given a good report. Hey, you know, we were taken very good care of by Gaius and the other Christians there. And then John wants to encourage and exhort Gaius and the other Christians there to continue in the same manner in sending others out as others would come by who are faithful ministers and missionaries that they would um, do the same way. Um, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Um, so this is the, the context. And John <clears throat> exhorts Gaius to continue treating such men in this way. So two, two points here are worth making from this text, okay? One is this. Sending them out in a manner worthy of God clearly involves giving them provisions at least or, and or money to equip them for their journey. Um, we know it's the case because of the, the contra- contrasting statement that they accepting nothing from the pagans or the unbelievers or the Gentiles. I don't think Gentiles is the best translation of it because the word is, um, it's, it technically could be Gentile, but the, the idea is not, well, just from Gentiles, but Gentiles used as a uh, sort of a, a sort of metaphor of sorts for the unbelieving world oftentimes in the New Testament. That seems to be what he's talking about is that they didn't do fundraisers among, you know, unbelievers, but they are men who, uh, you know, refuse taking anything from the unbelieving world and instead are only going to be supported by the church, right? So John says, support means to provide for their material needs at the very least and certainly implies getting behind them in every other way, especially prayer and encouragement. So it's all of the above, right? But in the context, it's certainly primarily equipping them in a material way, right? Because the reality is, you know, the same money goes, makes the world go round. I don't really like that saying in a, in a, in a certain context, but in another context, it's, it's true, isn't it? I mean, money is, God created a world in which there is economics. <laughs> economics is just the world, right? And it's not evil or wrong to have money and transactions taking place. It's actually a very good thing when it's done properly. So the equipping of saints, such men as it says here, who are faithful ministers of the, of the gospel, who are, are preaching the truth, is uh, it's a good thing. It's a, a noble thing to use your money, your resources in that way to support such men. So that's the first point. It's, it's certainly material um, support that's in view. The second point is this. In light of the existence of the false teachers who are disguised, you know, as wolves, so to speak, as Jesus said a moment ago, he sends his, his disciples out as, as lambs in the midst of wolves. There are wolves out there. In light of the existence of false teachers disguised as Christian missionaries, so to speak, we must support such men. This means men who are, who are preaching the truth of the gospel and not error. That's why it says that when you support such men, you are workers with the truth because they are preaching the truth of the gospel, right? Such men. <clears throat> Equipping missionaries is no small thing in the eyes of, of God. As the truth is proclaimed through our support of such missionaries, we are then fellow workers with the truth, right? Because the reality is missionaries can't do this without support from the church, right? It's, it's the right and proper thing that those who are going out for the sake of the name, meaning the name of Christ is what I think he's after there, 
in 3 John, that when they go out for the sake of the name, that they're to be supported by the body of Christ because they're going out for the sake of the name, right? They're worthy of support. He says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That's an interesting thing, you know? He could have said something like, give them a lot of money or give them a lot of material, you know, give them a lot of provisions when they leave, something really, you know, kind of earthy. But he doesn't say it in that way, right? And this is really the way the Bible speaks to us a lot of times. It, it elevates, the, the wording is elevated above that, worthy of God, right? Isn't that so much better, you know? Send them out in a manner worthy of God. Don't, not give them a lot of money or give them $10 or give them $50 or whatever. Worthy of God, right? It leaves it kind of open-ended to where, how much do you esteem these men and how much do you esteem God who sent them, right? We'll send them in a manner worthy of, of God. <laughs> it's really, it's really a, an interesting statement he makes there. Ultimately, we should be thrilled anytime the real gospel is proclaimed in the world, right? I mean, no matter who, no matter who is preaching or teaching it, if the gospel is preached, that is always a wonderful thing. I mean, the real gospel, right? However, <laughs> we know, and it's nothing new, right? We see it here in this text, that there are... Um, people who are more faithful and less faithful teachers of the gospel, right, and preachers of the gospel. There are those who we can get behind in part because it, they are preaching the true gospel, and there are those we can throw everything in, with, all our lot in with, right, because they're, they're heart and soul with us. Is that not the case with those we support, brothers and sisters? The Sims, Andre and Golo, and the, other, the whole church and CAR, um, you know, Larry and Bonnie, on and on, right? Marie Helene. These are, these are all efforts and people worthy of our support. They are, you know, I know such men in this case, but it's such people, we'll say. Um, you know, they're, they're, they are worthy of our support. And we should, and I think we do, um, you know, send them out, so to speak, in a manner worthy of God to the best of our ability. We are blessed to have first-hand knowledge, and in some case, you know, second-hand knowledge of these people, because, you know, the reality is we could, you know, we could get in touch with any number of mission agencies, sending agencies, and we could start just giving money, but the unfortunate thing is you don't always know where that's going and how it's, how, when it's on, you know, boots on the ground, what does it look like? Is our money really being spent for the furtherance of the gospel? Is it not? Uh, Is there real discipleship going on? You know, what's really happening? We are blessed to really know what's going on for the most part with the people we support, which is even more reason to have your heart in it because we know that it's for the progress of the gospel. It's the furtherance of the gospel, right? We can get behind it, right? And, and so that is a blessed thing that the Lord has given us, people like the Sims, people like Andre and Golo, and people like Larry and Bonnie who's, who've been among us, that we can fully get behind and say, these are, these are people who are worthy, worthy of, of our support. And we ought to support such people as, as them. And when we do so, we are fellow workers with the truth. We're in it together. I think Dan even made the point when he was la- here last time, kind of downplaying his role there, you know, which is amazing to me because Dan is like a workhorse, you know, like he's just, I know some of you all don't know what we're talking about, but some missionaries we supported, and, and one of them was here recently, um, uh, the, the father of the family here giving us a, kind of an update and report on what's going on there. So anyways, point being that Dan was sort of downplaying a bit his role there, you know, oh, we're just, we're just missionaries. <laughs> we're just missionaries. It's like, you guys are the real star of the show, you know, 
with all your prayers and support and all this, like, it's not either or, is it? But it is true in the text here, we are fellow workers with the truth when we give. And we don't need to downplay that, right? Dan doesn't need to downplay his role. And I, you know, I know he's not really. He really knows what, it's hard work. He knows way more than we do how hard it is. But, you know, we are fellow workers with the truth. When we throw our, our money and our material support behind missionaries, we are there in it with them in the thick of it with them, as it were. Even we're, when we're not physically there and when we lend our prayers to it, even more so, right? Because your heart's in it. So we're blessed to have this knowledge that we can send these people on their way in such a, such a manner, worthy of God. Second, and, and I'm gonna move on. We could do so many other passages about missionaries. I think that's a programmatic passage there. There are many, many passages where this language of sending out is used in the book of Acts, Romans, various places, where send out definitely means more than we wish you well, it means we're going to give you stuff as you go. <laughs> we're going to equip you literally with provisions to do, the, to do this work. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to the next category. We should give to support faithful elders in their leadership and teaching ministry. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning on this point because um, I just think the Lord wants us to hear it, um, honestly. So we're going to spend some time here. Um, the first text we need to consider is sort of a bridge text between the idea of supporting Christian missionaries and then supporting elders, ministers of the gospel in general, and that's 1 Corinthians 9. So you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, we'll look at verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> and while you're, um, while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of the immediate context of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 9 so you get a sense of it. So, 1 Corinthians 9 is right in the middle of a a section, really, which is 8 through 10, and the immediate context is essentially this. Paul raises the topic of his right to payment that he is uh, willingly setting aside for the sake of the gospel. He raises this topic to put himself forward as an exemplar or an example um, to imitate since the Corinthians are making much of their rights to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, let me flip over there, sorry. Um, chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one, etc. But this, this gets raised. The Corinthians may have raised the topic, and they probably did in a letter that they sent to Paul before, and Paul's now responding to their questions, or maybe, he, maybe Paul just knows about some issues going on there, and he's responding. Either way, this topic gets raised of sacrifice, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And the Corinthian church is saying, it's just meat. I mean, it's not, we know it was sacrificed to idols, but an idol's nothing in the world, right? It's, it's not anything. Um, it's, at the end of the day, we're just, we're not participating in worship. We're just eating meat, Right? And Paul says, well, that's, he agrees in part. That's true. It isn't just meat, right? It's true. But Paul says the argument of some in the church at Corinth being essentially we know it's just meat and that we aren't committing sin by eating it case closed is, is very myopic. It's, very, it's, very, uh, it's, one, it's one point to the exclusion of many other considerations, right? Paul agrees in principle with, with their uh, argument that they have knowledge to eat this meat and that they're not necessarily, you know, they're not engaging in idol worship. He agrees that it's, it's not idol worship per se, but 
He argues that their knowledge was leading to sin because of their unwillingness to set aside their rights when they were actually wounding the consciences of fellow Christians. Let's read that, verse 11 of chapter 8. For through your knowledge, they're claiming to have all this knowledge, right? For through your knowledge, he who is weak, meaning the person who had once been worshiping idols and has this close association with idol worship, this one who is, his, he's, he's weak in his conscience in the sense that he can't in good conscience participate in eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols because he still has that association in his mind to where he feels bad about it. He, he can't divorce, he hasn't been able to do a complete course correction in his mind and know that there's no real sin happening here when I eat this meat. He still feels kind of icky about it, that I'm doing something wrong, right? And Paul says, when you embolden such people to, to eat things sacrificed to idols, um, through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, into sin, that is, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So Paul's principle here is that it's not I have rights, case closed, the end, that's all you gotta say. (laughs) He's saying, yes, there are rights, but that's not the final or ultimate consideration. And he brings up in chapter nine, starting in verse one, his rights as an apostle. So let's read it. Paul says in chapter nine, verse one, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas, which is Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he, while he is treading or threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, it is, <clears throat> is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also... The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That last statement there that I just read, verse 14, is so programmatic and important for the entire topic of giving to leaders, to elders, um, to missionaries, in fact. Those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. In the context here, Paul is not setting himself, as an, uh, el- setting himself up as an example of an elder, per se, but as an apostle and a missionary, church planter, right? And he's talking by himself as one who is proclaiming the gospel all around. And he's saying that the Lord has said, meaning the Lord Jesus, 
has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What is he talking about? He's talking about Luke 10. (laughs) He's talking about Jesus sending out his disciples. See, Paul knows the words of Jesus. Sometimes people bring up, oh, well, Paul rarely ever quotes from Jesus or alludes to anything Jesus said. Well, that's true. He doesn't often, but he does do it, doesn't he? He's aware of what the Lord Jesus said, um, and here's an example of it. Um, so this, this whole argument is based on the fact that Paul has rights. In other words, Paul could come to the church at Corinth and say, you know what, guys? I'm really tired of working, making tents, and I just need a break, and I'm going to have to cash in on my right as an apostle, and I need some payment from you guys. Even though I know that, you know, you might maybe think that I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, I just, I just got to have pay, you know? Because this is Paul's whole argument. This hindrance to the gospel idea is that Paul, Paul's perception is that, in, at least with the Corinthian church here, that if he required payment for them, that someone might say, hey, Paul, you're just in it for the money, right? You're not really in it to preach the gospel for the gospel's sake, for the sake of other people. You just want to make a buck. Because unfortunately, that's why false teachers are around, isn't it? <laughs> they want power and self-importance and a buck. <laughs> they want money, right? And again, nothing changes in the world. It's the same. People do all kinds of things for money. And so Paul is saying that he uh, took the high road in this case and said, you know what, I'm not going to expect any compensation from the Corinthian church because I think it might be a hindrance to the gospel, and therefore I'm going to lay aside my right willingly. But Paul says, Paul's exception is an exception to the rule, isn't it? The rule is... (laughs) That ministers of the gospel, those who, as it says here, proclaim the gospel, should get their living from the gospel. Paul is not a contra- he's not contradicting that truth when he willingly lays aside his right um, to take that to take uh, money or provisions um, for the for his you know proclamation of the gospel. It's the exception that proves the rule. Paul grounds these rights in principles drawn from daily life experience. He talks about, you know, a soldier doesn't serve at his own expense or, you know, like in the case of, like I said, you you go on a work trip, you don't don't go on the work trip at your own expense. That's just common knowledge. Um, You don't uh, plant a vineyard and then think, hey, everybody else is going to eat from this vineyard but not me. Um, You don't have a flock and then you never get any milk from the flock. These are just examples from daily life where it's very obvious that if you pour effort and labor into something, you should be be benefiting from it, right? You should have some return on your investment. And Paul is arguing that way. But then he grounds everything that he says also in the Old Testament, uh, going back to the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Very interesting use of the Old Testament, isn't it? But he says... This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God is concerned, let me explain for you children. So an ox threshing, um, if, if he has a muzzle on his, ma- on his nose or mouth area, um, same thing for an ox, I guess, nose, mouth, uh, area. <laughs> uh, if he has a muzzle on, he's, he's going to feel hindered and it's gonna be harder for him to thresh out the grain, harder to do his job, right? And Paul is saying, the same way with those who are apostles or missionaries, or he will you know, also apply this to, to elders, those who preach and teach the, the word, um, that when, when, when a person who in this case is an apostle like, like he is, has to go out and make tents, and then in his free time go and proclaim the gospel, it's a bit like being muzzled, isn't it? 
It's, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> you're doing something that's hard already, and then it's harder because you're having to take care of yourself. And Paul says, from the law, it's not supposed to be that way. His second example is from uh, the Levitical system, the, the worship of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? In other words, it's not like they're there dealing with all this, this food and you know, uh, bread and meat and you know, uh, wine that's poured out and they don't get to partake in it at all. I mean, fellowship offerings were just that. You would, you would give some to the priest. That's how he ate because he didn't have any other job. His job was a priest. That's what he was. <laughs> he wasn't a priest like, you know, 50% of the time and then he was a stonemason or something the rest of the time. That's not how it worked. That's all he did. And <clears throat> Paul is saying from the Old Testament, from daily life, from the Lord himself ultimately, it's, the whole pattern is those who preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, get their living from the gospel. <clears throat> so how does that apply in, in our case? Well, <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we know that, I know it's awkward a bit to talk about Steve and Chris when they're in here, but we're brothers and sisters, family of one another, so I'm just going to talk about it, you know. Um, so we want Chris and Steve, we all do, I mean, I know every single person in here wants Chris and Steve to be unmuzzled, right? <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want you guys to have the muzzle on. It's not easy. I'm going to tell you something. Most of you all have never gotten up here and, and had to preach and teach. It's not easy work. And I'm, you know, I'm not an elder. I don't have the, the, all the other responsibilities that go along with it. I get the easy job of just getting to look at the word for a week or two and come up here and preach. That's easy. <laughs> and it's hard already just to do that, you know? It's hard work to be in the scriptures. Think about all the things that go into sermon prep. Let's just talk about the teaching aspect. You've got to look at context. You've got to look at the grammar. You've got to look at the original languages, ideally, if you know them. You've got to look at the history of interpretation. You've got to look at not just the context of an individual sentence and the words related, but the, intermediate, the, the, the uh, immediate context and then the context of the book and then grounded in the entire New Testament or Old Testament and then the entire Bible. It's a huge task to do that. You know, it's, The Bible's not laid out like a systematic theology book. So you have to think about everything at once and get it right, you know? And get it right. It's a lot of work. When you hear good preaching and teaching, and you may not be hearing it right now, I don't know, but when you hear good preaching and teaching, know this, there is a lot of work that has gone into that good preaching and teaching. It may seem really easy, but it is not. Now let's just take that, and let's add on top of that the daily concern of looking over, watching over people's souls, which is a burden in and of itself, and a time drain in and of itself, right? This is what elders do. It's the hardest job in the entire world <laughs> for that reason, because the stakes are the highest stakes in the world, right? If you fail as a, as a minister of the gospel and a shepherd of Jesus Christ, under, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, you not only lose for yourself, lose out for yourself, you can send people to hell <laughs> by your failure. And I mean that. False teaching sends people to hell. It really does. False teaching really matters. And on the flip side, sound teaching really matters, right? What is the essential role of, of a teacher, a, a preacher of the gospel, a, a minister of the word? It's to teach the sound teaching, the, the teaching that brings life and health, right, stability, and to refute those who contradict it. It's an offensive and a defensive position. That's the other 
hard part about it, right? You're not just on offense or defense, you're on both, <laughs> you know? If, if, you're in, if you play, you know, sports, you usually are, I'm better at offense, I'm better at defense, or you have your position, you know? As a, as a minister of the gospel, you've got to do both. You've got to be good at both, you know? If you get on YouTube, you see people that are, you sometimes see people that are good at one or the other, right? You have the discernment ministries that sometimes, AKA means, I love to tear people down and get a large crowd. That's not gospel, that's, there's a place for, as I just said, correcting falsehood, right, obviously. But the point is not just to tear down. It's not, I'm just gonna raise or decimate or level this, this viewpoint or whatever and just leave it. Then you have to build on the, what's the truth now, right? You created a vacuum if you just decimate falsehood, which is great, I'm all for decimating falsehood. I want it gone. But then you have to build because you know what? If you don't build, Satan comes back in and he builds something else that's different and still false. <laughs> That's the way it works, right? So the healthy teaching, the sound teaching is so critical, right? So critical. <clears throat> and it takes a colossal amount of work. I'll come back to this in a moment from another text because so I have a bit more to say on that point. But let's move on to um, another text. <clears throat> so the general principle here, 914, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Okay, Galatians 6, flip over there. And I'm going to read to get a little bit more context here, um, verses 1 through 10, but we're going to be looking at verse 6 specifically. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, so it seems to be a, you know, a continuous passage there. Paul has lots of different thoughts he's bringing in, but the, the basic concept here is that as, as Christians— um, we are in fellowship with one another. There's this one another, this mutuality, right? And part of what's going on in the Galatian church with the Galatian heresy is that, as always occurs, false teachers come in and division occurs, right? False teaching is, uh, sound teaching never brings division, <laughs> right? Being of one mind, and people might sometimes slander us, you all are just alike, I mean, at New Covenant. You all sound the same. You all are saying the same things. You know, it seems like you're all little sheep, they, people, people might say, I think that's great in some sense. You know? Now, we all are different people. I mean, that could, you know, there may be some valid things in some context, depending on what a person means. But for the most part, I am super glad that we are all of one mind and one heart, right? And that we think the same things, because that's what the Bible says we're supposed to be doing. It's not an unreachable goal to think the same things. It's the biblical expectation that we think the same things. And here in the, in the Galatian church, you have 
infighting. You have chapter 5, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. See, the false teachers come in and they start getting people thinking, well, I'm a little better because I now think the right thing and everybody else is thinking the wrong thing. Pride comes up, right? Self-importance happens. You start to get divisions and infighting and bickering and jealousies out, and strife and enmities, outbursts of anger, all the things he says here that are the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, that are the deeds of the flesh. Think about that. How many of the, the, of the deeds of the flesh that Paul mentions here in verse 19 and following are related to the Galatian situation of just being at each other's throats, right? That's, what it, that's why he brings up these specific points. So verse, verse 1 here, Paul is trying to stress this, the, the nature of their mutuality, that you, know, you can't just, as Steve often says, and it's great, there are no Lone Ranger Christians, right? That's not the way Christianity works. We don't stand or fall on our own. Now, ultimately, before the Lord on Judgment Day, we'll have to bear our own load, as Paul says here. I think that's what he's talking about. That's why it's future tense, that you know, no one is going to be able to you know, stand for you there beside you and defend you on the day of judgment. You will stand before the Lord by yourself and give an account for what you did in the body, whether good or evil. However, for the time being right now, we are to be in each other's lives, helping each other, encouraging one another, correcting each other. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, he says, you who are spiritual, spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So it's not there are two classes of Christians. There's your normal Christian and then there's your super Christian. He's saying by spiritual, the one who's walking in the spirit, right? The one who is keeping in step with the spirit and not falling, falling into sin is to come alongside, you know, um, this person who is caught in a sin and to help them out of it with gentleness and with, with an understanding that you too are subject to sin, right? You too, the next day, may be needing correction from the very person that you just helped. He or she may be coming to your house telling you, you know what? You're in sin, in fact, <laughs> and you need to repent, right? So that's, that's the way it works. Bear one another's burdens and thereby, thereby <clears throat> fulfill the law of Christ. It's interesting here that bear one another's, another's burdens, it's in a context here, of course, but it's a very general statement, isn't it? And I think what he means is a broad range of things, including restoring those who have been caught in sin, as he just said, encouraging the faint-hearted, meeting pressing needs, and paying teachers as they carry the burden of ministering the word faithfully. That is part of bearing one another's burdens, because it is a burden in a way, I mean it is, burden can have a negative connotation, I don't mean that, I mean it's a, it's a heavy task, it's a weighty task because of its significance and importance to preach and teach the word and to be shepherds of people's, over people's souls, right? <laughs> to be shepherds of people and, what, and those who watch over their souls. Um, so that's why I wanted to get into a little bit of the context before we look at verse six because this whole idea of bearing one another's burdens sets the tenor for verse six. There's this idea that, uh, of reciprocity, of giving and receiving in verse six, but it's rooted in the fact that we are of one another right? That we're members of one another and that we are to be bearing one another's burdens, whatever that means in a certain context. So let's let's look at verse six. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. All right, so what does this mean? It's kind of an oblique, strange statement. You know, we've looked at a very clear passage in 1 Corinthians 9, which is why I wanted to go there because it is so very plain and clear and it's programmatic. Now we take that 
and we see, okay, Paul could have said, okay, I have a right as a minister of the gospel to be paid for my labors in the Lord, right? But the way it really should work is here, verse six. The one who is taught the word is to, and it's a command, is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So those who are taught, those who are receiving on the, rece- on the receiving end are to take the initiative to make sure that those who are laboring in the gospel are getting compensated for it. That's the way it's supposed to work. Because think about it, it's an awkward thing, isn't it, from the standpoint of a leader to say, you know, by the way, guys, I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians 9, but it's kind of in there, I'm supposed to get in pay- be getting paid, you know. That's not the way it's supposed to work. They should never have to do that. Those of, those of us who are on the receiving end as, as teacher uh, being taught should be sharing all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, what is this? This is, a, again, kind of, it seems a little bit strange. Why does he say all good things? Um, well, this, this phrase is used uh, in various other contexts for material things, goods. All, it's, things is not even really there. It's not a separate word in the Greek. It's just all, all good, all, all goodness, all good, right? But, but clearly, this good that's being talked about is not just, it's not just, well, you know, Chris taught me something in the Word the other day, and it was great, and so I called him up and said, brother, I really benefited from what you told me. It is that, for sure, no doubt, it's that. But it's not just that, it's more than that. Look at verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What is he talking about? Doing good is performing good deeds. <laughs> it's, it's not just an attitude of, of goodness or something like that. It's, it's materially benefiting, helping people, getting people out of their troubles, right? Um, people who, who have no food, providing food for them. People who can't pay their bills because they had medical problems, helping them along, whatever it is. To the household of faith first, but all men. But this, this goodness, this good things, sharing all good things that's being talked about is definitely material benefit, no doubt, no doubt. Like I said, it's more than that, but it's not less than material benefit. This is the, as far as we know, the earliest text that refers to preachers and teachers of the word getting paid. Um, and it comes at it from that other direction of the onus being on us who are instructed under, under elders, under teachers, to make sure that te- teachers are, suppo- are supported in their labors. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I've already made some of these points, but I'll just stress again that the, the health of the church is, let me put it this way. We want New Covenant to be as healthy as possible, right? <laughs> we want to be a thriving body of believers, right? It doesn't happen apart from the ministry of the word, it just doesn't. It's not a certain combination of personalities. Like if we could get rid of like that person, that person, and move in some other people into, that, into their place in the body, then we'd have peace, and then we'd have joy. No, 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 no. It's the word changes us where we are, where you are as a follower of the Lord. The word comes and works on you, and then you live in harmony with one another, right? And it's all through the word. It has nothing to do with the personality of a leader. Nothing. Nothing. You can get a leader up here as dry as dry can be, preaching and teaching, and you can be changed and love one another because he taught the word faithfully. Now, I don't want dry preaching or teaching, right? That's not my, my desire, but my point is this. It's the word when it's preached 
and proclaimed, heralded, taught, whatever word you want to use, all of the above is true, um, <clears throat> that has this effect of change in our lives. And when those who are ministers of the gospel are muzzled and feel like they're running on fumes to try to cobble together some thoughts, you know, to present to you, even though they're doing the best they can, it's not what it would be or could be otherwise. I think we're really blessed with the teaching we've had here. I can't imagine what it would be like. It's so good right now. I mean, I I don't want to be laudatory. I know they hate this, but our brothers here are faithful. I'll say that. They're faithful brothers in the Lord and are faithful to the scriptures, and we are blessed to have them doing this as part-time, so to speak. I know it's a full-time job, but I'm saying, you know, in the sense of they have real jobs, full-time jobs, and they're doing this in their spare time, right? Okay, I know it's awkward for you guys. I'm sorry, brothers. But I'm just saying, how could it be if, if, if they're full-time, right? Anyways. <clears throat> Let's look at another text, and then we'll close this morning. 1 Timothy 5. <clears throat> All right, 1 Timothy 5, um, 17 and 18. <clears throat> the elders who, who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So we have, in some sense, nothing new here because Paul is quoting the same passages he's already quoted elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, in this case, to Timothy, right, and grounding his perspective on um, remuneration or payment for uh, elders in the scriptures and in what Jesus has to say. Again, ox, not treading out the grain grain or threshing, uh, we should say, and the laborer being worthy of his wages coming from Jesus' words to his disciples. But what is this business about the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor? So here's another text that, on the one hand, it seems like, well, what are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> Why are you using these words, double honor? What is that about? Well, let's look at a bit of the surrounding context very briefly. Before Paul talks about elders, he talks about widows. He says in chapter 5, verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed, or widows truly, or really. They really are widows, meaning they don't have support. They don't have a support structure. They're just by themselves. They're alone, right? Um, so what does he mean by honor? Does he mean, oh, you should just regard them highly? Well, clearly not. What would that do? I think the best of you, you know, widow. Um, sorry, you can't pay your bills, but I really think highly of you. That's, that's clearly not what's being talked about here, right? Honor means provide for them, and that's exactly what the rest of the passage talks about, that those who are widows indeed, who don't have any support structure in place, that the church will put them on a list and take care of them, right? Meet their needs. What about right after he talks about elders? Uh, look at chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Okay, so if you are a, uh, in this context, a slave under a master, and doesn't say Christian master yet, it will talk about that in the next verse down, but if you have a master and you're a slave, you are to work for that master in such a way that you show that you are honoring him. Again, it's not just you think warm thoughts about your master or something like that. The honor is tangible, right? It's something you can see. That slave honors his master. Why? Because he works hard. He does a good job. 
He's not doing a halfway job, right? Not just for, for as, as a men pleaser. It's, he, you know, he's before God, this Christian slave is working, knowing that what he does for his master is in the service. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve, Paul says in Colossians. You don't serve this master. You, master, you serve the Lord Christ. He's your master, right? So honor clearly means, in the context of the whole section, um, more than just thinking highly of or something like that. Um, it's taking care of, providing for, supporting materially. The elders <clears throat> who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Okay, so does that mean double pay? You could technically render it that way. There are some people who've taken it that way. It could be that. One, one problem with that might be uh, thinking that, well, in, in the context of the first century, would they really be able, say you had three elders, let's say, that you pay this one elder double what you pay the others? Uh, maybe, possibly, it's certainly possible. Most commentators take it at, as double honor means you, you both regard them highly and you pay them. Either way, whichever way you slice it, there's payment involved. And that's very obvious from the, from the context afterward because he says uh, the laborer is worthy of his wages, right? So he's talking about pay. Double, double honor is regarding pay to some extent, for sure. It's there. Um, so now is this passage teaching there are, that there are two categories of elders? Um, so those of us who have any knowledge of Presbyterianism know that often in Presbyterianism you have teaching elders and ruling elders, right? And uh, that teaching elders are ones who, you know, so if you go to a Presbyterian church and you have, let's say, five elders, you might only see one or two that get up and actually preach to you on a Sunday morning. But you have the other, let's say, three who are doing all the behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, talking to people, counseling, yada, yada, but they don't really do much teaching. Um, is that what Paul is talking about here? I don't think so. <laughs> think about it. What does Paul say in the, same, the very same letter as qualifications for elders? They have to be able to teach. Well, it's kind of a silly qualification to say, well, you, you have to be able to teach, but you're not going to have to teach. It's like if, you know, my job, I, you know, I'm a physical therapist assistant. If, if on my, when I was applying for the job, it says, well, you're going to have to be able to, uh, you know, I don't know, use Microsoft Word or something. I haven't used Microsoft Word in years. That's a terrible example, but I probably couldn't use Microsoft Word. But um, it's like, well, if I would never be required to use Microsoft Word, then why would I have to use Microsoft, know how to use Microsoft Word? It's like, kind of a weird qualification, isn't it? So I, I don't buy it. Um, however way you slice it, and it's a little bit of a tricky passage and exactly what's meant, um, this double honor here definitely means pay. <laughs> There's pay involved here, no doubt. Um, and I just want to point out a couple of things. One is, it says, work hard at preaching and teaching. I think that some of the other, I looked at some of the other translations, and they were very weak, some of them. Even this is I think toil is a better translation, actually. Those who toil at, at preaching and teaching. Work hard sounds, you know, like I might say, yeah, I went out and cut my grass and I worked pretty hard, you know. But if I say, man, I went out and I was toiling, you know, that kind of connotes something different, doesn't it? I was toiling. That grass was like this tall. I couldn't even see where I was going, you know. Thankfully, Ethan cuts the grass now, so I'll never have to, actually. That's just a hypothetical illustration. <laughs> It's a wonderful thing, having children. <clears throat> um, you can add that into your stuff on ki kids, Steve. I know you know about it. Um, so working hard, toiling. Again, P 
Paul, see, Paul knows firsthand, because <laughs> he's teaching all over the place, that it's not easy to do. It's, it's toil, it is hard work, right? And essentially, you get what you pay for, right? You get what you pay for. It's true, that's a truism in life, you know, in, in general, right? That if we have elders who are year after year after year after year with no end in sight, no relief, they're just working a full-time job and working at it bivocationally, it's going to have some impact. It's having some impact, brothers and sisters, I don't know what it is because like I, I see that we're very stable in the Lord and we're doing well as far as I can tell, you know, but it's gotta have some impact, right? If not so much for negative things that are happening right now, but what about things that could be happening, right? Good things that could be happening to our body if Steve and Chris were full time or at least one of them, right? Things that we're not able to do because we're limited in that way, right? Right, so it's a, uh, it's an important thing, it's a significant thing, it's a command of the Lord that we honor our brothers here, and just in general, anyone who's an elder, a teacher of the word, preacher of the gospel, that we honor them uh, by not only regarding them highly in love, but honor them with uh, provision for, for their labor, right? Let's see, 1232. Uh, yeah, I'll just make this, this final point from this passage here. The elders, elders who rule well are to be, con- <coughs> be considered worthy of double honor, especially, well, this word could, and again, I'm not really, I'm not, really, I'm not sure where I land on this as far as taking it this way. It could mean namely instead of especially. Um, for those, I know some know Greek, it's malista. Especially, or namely, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the point I want to bro- draw from, the, from, from this is that elders don't rule on their own authority, right? Uh, Dave and I were talking, and Caroline were talking about this in the car, that, you know, um, when Steve or Chris or any elder has to go do counseling with someone, they don't set aside the word of God and preaching and teaching to do their counseling. <laughs> Probably the first thing they do is open up the Bible and put it there. Now, what does the Bible say about your problem? Oh, you're having trouble with bitterness against this person? Let's go to Hebrews, root, root of bitterness, right? Or whatever it is. It's the ministry of the word, right? What they say doesn't matter. You've heard Chris and Steve say it themselves over and over again. What they say, their opinion does not matter. And that's the way a good elder thinks. Their opinion means nothing. It is their job to do one thing, to faithfully communicate the, the good news in all its fullness to those under their charge. And that's it, right? And to rule them, meaning the word here is the same word is used for managing the household. Like, so, so the qualification for an elder to manage the household, the elder has to manage his household well, is the same word. It's, a, it's not like rule in the sense of this kingly, tyrannical rule. It's a rule like you as a father have in your household. You have the rule over your house, but it's not a des- you're not a despot, are you? I hope not, right? You're supposed to rule in love. You're supposed to have a care and a concern for those in your house, right? Otherwise, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> you're a terrible father, right? And that's the same way it is in the church. It's the, it's the family of God. It's God's people, right? So the degree to which elders um, you know, rule well is the regard they have for, for the Lord and for the rest of us, that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord and that they're under 
Jesus as the chief shepherd. Um, so yeah, I just want to make that point that coming back to the word, um, that is so significant that, that Stephen Chris, since we're talking about our body, we're not, I hate, there's so many sermons preached generally. We're here now, right? We're in our body. So I'm going to say things for our body. Stephen and Chris are faithful brothers to the word of God, right? But they need more time, brothers and sisters. They need it. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to pray, first of all. We need to pray that the Lord would bring in more people. And we have been praying. And guess what? Some of you haven't been in here that long, have you? Because why? Because you're new people. You guys are here because we have prayed, right? We prayed. And it's not because we prayed, we want your money, come in here. No, that's not it at all, you know? It's, we want, we want more brothers and sisters in here. Of course, just because you're, we want more brothers and sisters in here. We want lost people coming in here. You know, they're coming to know the Lord and they're getting taught in the word. But it's not wrong to, to also pray that Stephen Chris can be unmuzzled, right? That's a perfectly reasonable biblical prayer that we need to pray, right? And then the second point is this. We need to all, of course, myself included, assess our spending and our giving, and see what we can do, right, as individuals. Out of love, right? Out of love. It's a, it's a, I want us to, again, as I said, the very first time I started this series, I don't want to come down with some axe or some burden or hammer on, on you guys, or myself, for that matter, unless I need to, on giving. I want you to see the possibilities, right, <laughs> instead of, oh man, I, I spent too much money on this or too much money on that, I'm gonna beat myself up about it. I want you to think more like, I could have given that money to Andre. I could have given that money to Steve and Chris, right? I'm gonna say more about priorities of giving next week as I finish up next week um, with this series. But we're out of time, so I'm gonna leave it there. Sorry I went over, but there's a lot to be said and I appreciate you guys listening. So why don't we pray and we'll finish up next week. Lord, um, we thank you for the fact that your word is so clear and gives us everything we need for life and godliness and that you, um, Lord, have given us um, our brothers here um, who, are, who are our brothers, Lord. They're not lording it over us. They're not um, trying to be people of importance, Lord. They're just trying to be faithful to you and show the love of Christ um, to, to us. And Lord, I pray that we would esteem them highly in love. And I pray that um, for those, those missionaries that we are supporting, um, Lord, that we would uh, Lord, also always have them in, in the forefront of our minds as we are praying and as we are spending and as we are just living our lives, Lord, that we would always have the gospel in, in, in the center of our thinking, Lord, and that we do all things, as Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, including our, with our spending, Lord, and our giving. And Lord, uh, we just, again, thank you for uh, teaching us from your scriptures, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.